Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute. Today's episode will be a Christmas special Ask Me Anything episode, where we answer questions from our listeners. Thanks to everyone who submitted their questions. We've had many questions and we'll be asking our panel of experts to discuss them. My name is Blake Mumford and I'm a Dermatology Research Fellow at the Skin Health Institute. And I'm Dr. Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, Medical Educator and Research Fellow at the Skin Health Institute. Today is a particularly bittersweet episode. After two years as a co-host on Spot Diagnosis, this is Dr. Blake Mumford's last episode. Let's make this one special. We also welcome back our panel in the studio today. First up, we have Associate Professor Alvin Chong, a specialist dermatologist at the Skin Health Institute and St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. Thanks for having me back, guys. Next, we have a returning spot diagnosis guest, Dr. Belinda Welsh. Belinda is a dermatologist and director of Complete Skin Specialists, as well as a consultant at the Skin Health Institute and the Royal Children's Hospital. Hello, everyone. Next, we have Dr. Naveen Sunny Singh, a general practitioner with 23 years experience, who is also an examiner for the FRA CGP exam and a supervisor of GP training. Hi, everyone, and thank you for having me back. And finally, Dr. Karen Freelich requires no introduction to those who are familiar with medical podcasts. Karen is a co-host of Humorous Hacks, a podcast for medical students on a range of topics. She's also a GP trainee and has a particular interest in sexual health. Thanks, everyone. Very excited to be back. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. The first questions are important for those of us transforming ourselves into our best summer selves, laser hair reduction. But first, an important question, is laser hair reduction linked to cancer? It wouldn't be the first time humanity has been burned by a cosmetic procedure. Tanning salons, anyone? Well, thanks, Blake. Good question. I'm very pleased to reassure everyone that laser hair reduction is not linked to cancer. The light that is used for lasers is visible light, so it is not carcinogenic. The actual cancer risk is not for the person having the laser treatment, it's actually for the operator. And there has been actually a lot of work done on laser plume. And this sort of work is done as well as smoke from uh, cautery devices and surgical smoke. But laser plume does actually contain quite a lot of carcinogens. And sometimes if you're lasering over certain things like uh, warts, you may aerosolize the virus. So there is a risk perhaps to the operator if they're not wearing a mask and if there's not good ventilation and vacuum extraction in the room of inhaling these things. But as the patient, you're completely safe. Mm, Inhaled viral warts sounds uh, delightful. Another laser question, but is laser hair reduction really permanent? Yes, to a degree. So this has been probably the most clever invention, I think, of uh, the modern times was the invention of lasers for use on the skin. And the way it works is by uh, something we call selective photothermolysis. So we select a wavelength for a particular target in the skin. And so for hair, that target is melanin in the hair bulb. So what we're trying to do is use a wavelength of light that will selectively target the melanin and deliver that light as energy to the hair bulb. 
selectively heating it up and causing hopefully enough destruction so that that hair can't regrow. So the hair bulb itself is not where the hair grows from. It grows from a place called the bulge. So we almost need that energy to be delivered to the hair bulge so it can't regrow. So there's no doubt that when you treat, you can selectively destroy a percentage of cells each treatment because hair grows in cycles. So not all of them are actively growing. It's the actively growing ones that we're knocking out. So after about three or four treatments, you might reduce up to 60 to 70% of the hairs and the rest will grow back more slowly. Uh, They'll be finer and they'll be less pigmented. But not all of us are suitable for hair laser, unfortunately. So the ideal patient tends to be someone with light skin and dark hair because we don't want the pigment in the skin to be absorbing any of the laser light. We want it directly down into the hair bulb. You can use a few different types of lasers, though. Lasers with longer wavelengths can treat darker skin types quite safely. Belinda, our next question is for those of us who are still trying to lose our COVID-19 kilos. What's your approach to stretch marks? Well, depends on the person. So stretch marks are most common if you've had a pregnancy, if you've gained weight rapidly, or if you've used topical corticosteroids in sensitive areas like thighs or arms or breasts. But treatment is challenging. Histologically, what happens is that those elastin fibres under the skin basically get stretched and the skin tends to be atrophic in the stretch marks. They're a physiological phenomenon and often will occur also with growth spurts. So young women will tend to get them on breasts and arms and legs, whereas young men will get them horizontally across the back. And not always people don't always recognise that. They almost grow straight up, so they get their stretch marks across their back. Look, there's no easy treatment for them, unfortunately. Their natural history is that they will start red. They'll get be quite inflamed early on and almost a little bit edematous. And then as time goes on, it takes months and sometimes even a, a year or two, they lose that redness and they become these silvery streaks, which often are very, you know, hard to see on the skin. When they're red and inflamed, Really, the only things that have been shown to be effective are a pulse dye laser. Uh, Because what the pulse dye laser does is it takes the redness out, so it makes them look better, but it also stimulates collagen production and fibroblasts. So that's probably the the most effective thing. If you can't have access to those, a topical retinoid is worthwhile using. And it has the same effect. It stimulates fibroblasts, increased collagen and elastin production. But, you know, you may be having to use that over a fairly large area and they can be a little bit irritating, but definitely worth persisting with. People who might be at home will come across all sorts of things on the internet and that'll include topicals like bio oil and various things that they're sold which don't really have any physiological activity. Topical silicon gel does help scars, although we actually don't know how it works. But silicon gel is available over the counter and is probably worth using. Thoughts on LED masks? And uh, for my sake, uh, can you explain what an LED mask is and uh, why on earth you'd buy one? 
LED stands for light emitting diode. So often they're light that's emitted within a range of wavelengths, usually 400 to 700 nanometers, and they're in the visible spectrum. Some of them go out to the near infrared, which might be 830 nanometers. But there is literature and research that has shown that these wavelengths can be beneficial for certain things. So that might be acne. And the way it works with acne is the uh, propionibacterium acnes have products in them that uh, if you illuminate them with the red light, you can kill them. They have porphyrins. So porphyrins are photosensitive uh, products. So if you irradiate them with red light, that'll hit those porphyrins, which then become toxic to the bacteria. The other thing that red light and uh, some sometimes those slightly longer wavelengths will do is stimulate collagen. So there is evidence that it does do that, and they can be somewhat anti-inflammatory, which will also benefit acne. So that's why they're sold to, to, for those benefits. Uh, they're also sort of reasonably relaxing if you've ever tried one. You know, it's sort of you had a hard day. It's quite nice to put an LED light on and you feel a bit relaxed, but they're very bright. So one of the problems can be uh, eye damage if you're not careful to protect your eyes while you've got them on. So we we do use them in the clinic. We use them uh, post-procedure if we want to sort of induce a bit of inflammation and help healing. Uh, but we, uh, but there, some clinics will also use them for acne. Well, can I just add something to it? I think when you know, where we get into issues is when it's used as monotherapy for acne. Correct. Okay, so if someone has... Severe acne, no amount of LED light is going to help them. Correct. Okay? You're going to need antibiotics, potentially isotretinoin. So I would say that it's probably used as an adjunct to some acne treatment, but probably not as monotherapy. Our next question was very popular, perhaps because our questions came from doctors. Dark circles and bags under the eyes. How to treat? Apart from going back 15 years not having kids and getting more sleep. You've asked me all the really hard questions today. This is one where there are a multitude of factors contributing to dark circles and sometimes they're genetic and some races just tend to have orbital structures. That means that they have deep orbital rims and they get these sort of dark circles because of, of the depth of their tear trough. And then that's coupled with very thin skin in that area. And what that means is that blood vessels underneath the skin are more easily seen and that light is transmitted through the skin so that blue vessels under the skin will contribute to that dark look. And then, you know, if you've got sort of darker skin and it's pigmented, that can contribute as well. And some uh, races of people would have dark periorbital skin. So it requires sort of a multimodal approach to try and improving this, and sometimes you just can't. If part of it is anatomical due to a really deep tear trough, sometimes you can improve that with hyaluronic acid fillers, which are very popular, and everyone thinks of big lips when they think of fillers. But in terms of injecting that into sort of the face in various sort of very specific areas, that can help dark circles. It's very hard to laser them because it's a, it's a difficult area to laser, even if you want to use pigment lasers or rejuvenating lasers, that skin is very delicate. If they've blue veins under the skin, 
You can sometimes laser with a YAG laser, which can target the blue vessels. So if you take out that colour, it will improve the overall appearance, but that has to be done pretty carefully, obviously. But creams don't tend to improve it either. You can use creams that will try and increase the thickness of the skin and the topical retinoids are best at that. And But a lot of product ranges will have specific eye creams, which really have no inherent benefit. But I, I usually would prescribe a topical retinoid to try and improve that skin. It is not something that's very easy to treat, and it depends on the individual. If the pigmentation is genetically based, you really can't change that. I do like the idea of a very good concealer in this situation. And again, you know, sometimes people will ask me, well, I'd really like not to be using makeup, but, you know, that's sort of ambitious. Uh, And there are some really excellent concealers out there. And I think for some people, that is what we need to use. What is the best way to improve persistent facial redness? Uh, Came from one of our listeners. Well, okay. So there's, I'm assuming that, that persistent facial redness can be due to a number of things. Often it's sun damage, and if it's a Celtic skin type, so fair skin, it's usually sun damage, and the next most common thing is rosacea. If it's just, if the skin is normal and it's just colour, it's redness, so persistent redness and flushing, it's laser. It's really the only thing that is going to have any significant impact and long-term effect. Does that work for the just the telangiectasia, or will it help a little bit? With the redness, the other sort of background redness, does yep. it help so much with that? Or? Absolutely. So the most common laser we use is a pulsed dye laser. So that's 595 nanometer wavelength. And that laser was actually developed in the 80s to treat port wine stains in children. And it's been, you know, a staple ever since. And it's extremely effective. What strategies do you use to decrease the risk of scar formation due to procedures? Uh, the person who asked the question uh, felt that, being a, you know, a physician, most people probably already answer, know the answer to this question, but uh, I certainly would like to hear your thoughts. Okay, so if we're talking about prevention of keloid scars in a procedure such as uh, an operation. So the first thing is prevention. If you can actually ensure good healing, then that reduces the risk of keloid scarring. And by that, I mean you reduce attention to the scar, you make sure that the wound doesn't dehiss or doesn't get infected, But there are some areas of the body which are high-risk sites. No matter who does a procedure, no matter how skillful the surgeon, there are places where keloid scarring and hypertrophic scarring will occur in a significant proportion. And by that, I mean the V of the chest, the upper back, and the shoulders, particularly in young people. Young people are just a little bit more prone to developing keloids. So the main thing is we try to prevent it but there are situations where they will occur no matter what you do. Is it true that young Asian women are particularly prone to keloid scarring in those locations? Anecdotally, yes. Young Asians, people with a type 4 skin, uh, darker skin types, you tend to see like quite significant keloid scarring sometimes in these patients. There is some limited evidence in preventing keloid scars with things like silicon gel, or silicon gel sheeting. And then if keloids or hypertrophic scars are to develop, then usually we use a series of intralesional steroid injections, occasionally coupled with things like 5-fluorouracil. 
Yeah, thanks, Alvin. I mean, I agree with everything you've said. There's definitely a genetic tendency to get keloids. So in that sort of pre-op workup, if you're asking, it's sometimes it's useful to ask if people have a family history of keloids or if they've had one before, and then you're very careful. You can also use dressings to reduce wound tension and keep them on for several weeks afterwards. Now, on to an area of great debate, the endless mineral versus chemical sunscreen debate. Is there a difference and what should we choose? That's a good question. All sunscreens in Australia have been tested by the TGA to achieve their SPF rating. So you kind of divide sunscreens into mineral sunscreens, which are more particulate in nature. So the particles will reflect UV light and they're more often white, like zinc oxide is a typical mineral sunscreen. It's what cricketers put in their lips and their noses. Okay, it's, it's white or sometimes pink or sometimes yellow. Titanium dioxide, which can be um, micronized. And so they're nanoparticles. So they're not quite as white, but they still reflect sunscreen. Well, chemical sunscreens are not particulate and they absorb UV light. And these include chemicals such as abobenzone, octocrylene, benzophenone. But both physical and chemical sunscreens are very effective. And many, many sunscreens would blend both of them together to give you a broad spectrum sunblock. There are many, many formulations of a sunscreen as well. There's gels and sprays and creams. But the usual saying is that the best sunscreen is the one you're going to use. And the other thing is don't use sunscreen by itself as photo protection. There's no point putting on a little bit of sunscreen and being in the sun for eight hours because you are still going to get a lot of sun damage. You have to mix it up, lip, slop, slap, seek shade, slide on sunglasses. So the Sun Smart campaign. Hang on, check there, Alvin. You mentioned that sunscreen may contain nanoparticles. Does this mean that I'm going to be microchipped and the government's going to be tracking my location? I have no idea how the nanoparticle debate started, but some years ago it was a little bit controversial, but now there's really, really clear that there is no evidence at all that nanoparticles cause any kind of harm to the human body. Right. So another popular sunscreen related question was how to investigate a rash that's related to sunscreen and when to refer. This is actually quite complex. So I'll give you a scenario. You know how some sunscreens are available in a spray form, right? So what happened when this came out was patients were just kind of spritzing their skin from a distance and getting a tiny amount of sunscreen in the skin and then spending hours in the sun. Of course, they get sunburned. And then people say, oh, it's because I'm allergic to the sunscreen. Well, actually, it's you have underapplied the sunscreen and you've got a burn. So true sunscreen allergy due to a chemical component of sunscreen is very rare, less than 1% of cases. So I think if someone is getting a either sunburn or some kind of reaction to a sunscreen, the first thing I would suggest is test them to a small part of their body. For example, put a small amount of sunscreen uh, on the inner arm first and without sun, and then see how it goes before applying all of their skin. Now, if someone is getting reactions to multiple sunscreens, then potentially it could be a type of allergic contact dermatitis to a component of sunscreen. And in that case, consider a, re a referral for patch testing. Now, you have also patients who have very sensitive skin. In that case, use sunscreens that contain more particulate sun, sunblock like zinc oxide and titanium dioxide because 
those are less likely to cause contact dermatitis. Several listeners agree that nighttime itch was a problem in their kids. So they asked, when does it happen and why does it happen? What do we do about it? My approach to the problem is trying to work out if the itch is generalized or localized and is rash associated with the itch or not. And once you've answered those two questions, then you can start moving forward. But certainly in general practice, particularly in children, eczema is probably the most common cause we see in general practice for nighttime itch in children. And in a previous podcast, Alvin's gone through the detailed management of eczema, so I refer to that. The other thing that can happen, which is much simpler, is some parents just overheat their kids at nighttime, either by the pyjamas that they put on, as well as the bedding which they use. So if you avoid overheating, so lighter pyjamas and light bedding, that often helps with the nighttime itch. Of course, in children, you've got to exclude scabies, particularly if they're at childcare or in, in primary school. Another particular localized itch is perianal itch. Okay, and once again, it's not common, but we do see worms. So keep your mind open to worms and treat if if you suspect it. But the other thing, of course, is perianal hygiene, particularly in young children who are looking after their own hygiene themselves. Contrary to common opinion that the more you wash it, the better it's going to get. It's actually being gentle with the washing. So avoid soaps down below. The skin and the mucosa around the anus is really fragile. And so if you use harsh soaps and vigorous cleaning, it actually makes it worse. So I tend to just recommend washing with water rather than using any soaps. Don't vigorously rub and pat dry with a cotton towel rather than using toilet paper. So if you address those perianal hygiene issues, then often the perianal itch settles down. But we're talking about kids with itch, but what about elderly patients or patients in aged care? So we're assuming there's no underlying cause. We've ditched the soap, we've done the duty, and we've moisturised the skin. It's a real nuisance for patients, and some of them scratch to the point of getting skin tears and bleeding. What should we do about that? It's a good question. I guess it is really important to exclude underlying causes, and often the elderly are on multiple medications, polypharmacy. So it's worth addressing their medication. Do they need some of the medications which they're on? Particularly those in nursing homes or institutions, look out for scabies once again, so keep your mind open to that. And exclude underlying causes like infections or malignancy. But if you excluded all those things, then I tend to use low-dose tricyclics, so something like amitriptyline, 10 to 25 milligrams at night, often helps that nocturnal itch, helps them get sleep as well. So it makes the patient as well as those in the nursing home much happier. You can try an oral antihistamine as well to see if that actually gets you some improvement. And in some articles, they've said that low-dose SSRIs are an option as well. Now, one of the cornerstones of general practice is molluscum contagiosum. We want to know what's the best treatment for it. What should we do? Uh, My approach to it is do as little as possible. I tend to leave them alone and reassure the parents that over months or maybe even a couple of years, the molluscum will eventually disappear. And the less you do to it, the less chance you have of getting scarring. So I actually tell them to do nothing. If they become itchy, I ask them to parents to cover the lesion that's itchy with a Band-Aid or some micropore tape, basically to stop the irritation and stop auto-inoculation spreading the molluscum virus to other parts of the skin. But if the parents are getting really frantic, then I do refer off to dermatologists for uh, further management. But I tend to avoid that if I could. I think the difficulty with molluscum can be, you know, if you start getting multiple lesions and then you have eczema on top of it and the the kid scratches and just spreads it everywhere, it can be a bit of a nightmare. The most difficult thing is actually, as you said, Sunny, learning to leave it alone because I think trying to freeze molluscum, particularly in young kids, is is really quite tricky. It's painful. The the kid develops a distrust of doctors and gets post traumatic stress disorder, <laughs> and they'll never let you you know near them again. 
Well, dermatologists use a treatment called topical cantharidine, which is it's a beetle juice. Okay, it actually causes very superficial blistering, but even that is not without its issues. My kid developed molluscum, and I thought, I'm a dermatologist, so I'll use some cantharidine. <laughs> and my poor kid, she was, he was six at the time, developed these really painful blisters and was screaming in agony and basically needed analgesia. And it took a, you know, they went away, by the way, and it didn't scar, but gee, it was, it was unpleasant. So I don't know, Belinda, you got any better ideas? Uh well, I did exactly the same to my kids. <laughs> I did all three of them. I induced these, you know, quite superficial blisters. And the magic of cantharidin is the blistering occurs about four to six hours after you apply it. So it's actually not in your rooms. It's later on. <laughs> and of course, uh, you know, what I did was I got home from work, I put it on and two o'clock in the morning, you know, my daughter's <laughs> screaming and I put it stupidly on her inner thighs. And the other thing is often kids, you know, when they get the eczema, parents are scared of using topical steroid to treat the eczema because of the molluscum. The, the short answer is don't be scared of it. Use topical steroids, calm the eczema down. The kids less likely to scratch and kind of auto-inoculate. Mm. The other thing that sometimes you can use is a miquamod. Yep. And uh, you can just use that neat directly on each molluscum. And what you're trying to induce is what we're hoping to get, which is a, a, an immune response to the virus. All right. So uh, I guess a rite of passage for all dermatologists is to uh, torture young children, <laughs> including your own. So prescribing doxycycline and minocycline for acne. Uh, one listener wanted to know, does this really reduce the efficacy of oral contraception, the oral contraceptive pill that is? And uh, do you switch women's contraception to non-oral contraceptions if you if you are using oral monocycline and doxycycline? Uh, so the short answer is no. Uh, I'm quite comfortable using the oral contraceptive pill with doxycycline or minocycline. The only antibiotic I think that's actually you need to be careful about with the pill is rifampicin, which we don't use in acne. On the flip side to contraception, what if someone's pregnant and they want treatment for their acne or they know they're going to get pregnant soon? We know we can't give isotretinin. What can we give in pregnancy? That's a very difficult scenario because, as you know, pregnancy can actually worsen acne. And we see that patients are you know, in their first, first trimester and the hormones are raging and they've got this terrible, terrible outbreak on their face. So first thing, no retinoids, whether systemic or topical. That means you rule out, of, uh, rule out a lot of options. So in terms of antibiotic, I would probably, the only antibiotic that's category A that, you know, that I would recommend is uh, oral erythromycin. And that is used in doses of 250 milligrams twice daily for a period of time. That is safe. In terms of topical treatment, anything that contains benzoyl peroxide by itself or in combination with a non-retinoid, for example, clindamycin benzoyl peroxide lotion, that is also safe. But short of these, hardly anything. Sometimes this is when the softer, inverted commas, treatments like LED light, skin peels, and even some cosmeceuticals can be helpful. So the alpha hydroxy acids, particularly salicylic acid, is quite safe to use. Topical niacinamides, anti-inflammatory. And some LED light is not the answer, but it can help. If big cysts come up, you can use some intralesional steroid because what we don't want is for that to scar. So we sort of try and stay quite on it. 
so that we can sort of navigate the pregnancy carefully and not having scarring as a result of it. But it is challenging to treat. But, you know, some of these other treatments can help and it also provides just support for your patient along the way. On the subject of acne, acne affecting the back seemed to be a bit of an issue for a number of our listeners. One person asked, what is the best topical treatment for this type of acne? Any of the topical treatments that are available that we would normally use for acne are quite fine to use on the back. There's no reason you can't use them. But it is a large area, and so you're just going to go through your product more quickly. There has been a um, relatively new product called Trifaritine on the market, which is a topical retinoid, which stimulates RXR receptors, which is slightly different to the ones we've used up until now. That comes in a larger dispenser and a pump pack, so 50 gram. And that's been specifically formulated for, for acne on the back. Our last question linked to acne is actually on the result of acne. How do we deal with hyperpigmentation caused by cystic acne? So hyperpigmentation, we call it post-inflammatory pigmentation, P-I-H, is probably one of the hardest types of pigment to treat. And the reason is that when there's inflammation in the skin, if there is disruption of the dermoepidermal junction, the pigment in the melan- or the melanosomes, although that pigment in the- which is usually resides in the epidermis, sort of falls down into the dermis. So it- you can think of it like a tattoo. So it's sitting in the dermis and it is very hard to shift. So topical products won't get down there and won't move it. And you have to wait for those macrophages to come in and clear them out. And that can take months and years to clear. And so the only way that you might have a chance of clearing it is actually with a laser. But the traditional lasers we've had up until now have not been very successful at all. There is a new type of laser called a Pico laser. And the way this works, and it's often used for tattoos, again, similar concept, is that the laser light is pulsed extremely, extremely quickly and it shatters pigment to a fine sand and that gives you macrophages a bit of chance of getting rid of it. But beyond that, creams unfortunately won't work. It's tincture of time. So, you know, and again, this is why in certain skin types it's so important to treat acne early and aggressively. The next question we had was on psoriasis. And the best part about psoriasis, I think, is the difficulty that we all have spelling the word psoriasis and how many variations of the spelling that people come up with with it. I think I had a list somewhere, but given that this is an audio podcast anyway, how do we treat psoriasis specifically topically? That's a very good question, Karen. So it really depends on the severity If you have a patient that's completely covered with psoriasis, topical treatment is really not going to be effective. It's going to take too long. And uh, you'd be thinking about using a systemic treatment like ultraviolet light treatments, methotrexate, or the biologics. Now, if you do have just limited disease, for example, classic plaque psoriasis, which is often the knees and elbows, then the mainstay is a combination calcipatrial betamethasone in combination. And if the psoriasis is very thick, consider combining salicylic acid uh, with a tar cream that can be compounded, that can be used overnight in the scalp, but it can be quite messy and quite smelly. But 
the combination of tar salicylic acid with a topical steroid lotion is probably the mainstay for psoriasis of the scalp. And perhaps if you want, if you are more interested, we have episodes two and three in season one, which actually cover psoriasis treatment in more detail. So I might add, this is between a topical and a systemic, is occasionally if you've got very limited plaques, just elbows, knees, you know, one or two patches on the legs or the buttocks, intralesional triamcinolone can be very effective. So you can use maybe between 5 and 10 milligrams per mil. Be a bit careful on the 10. So I would start with 5. So you can dilute that with normal saline. And just very, very careful superficial intradermal injections at multiple points throughout that plaque can often switch it off and turn it off for several months in some people. So the trick is to do it in such a way that you're not inducing atrophy. But I find that I've got a little cohort of patients who just come back, you know, whenever they need to, and I just inject their plaques and that's all they need. The next question is for our dermatologists and around being a good medical practitioner citizen person. So what information do you find most helpful on a referral from a GP? I think the referral should have as much information as possible. So particularly related to the issue, past history, particularly previous treatments. Okay, so if someone has come and usually, you know, you know what they say? They say, I've tried everything on it and nothing works. Right. And if the GP actually hasn't put in what treatments have been used, it's like dragging blood out of stone. You know, you, you have no idea what what has been tried, whether you've used a steroid, whether it's potent, whether it's mild. So as much information in previous treatments. I also find a statement on, you know, how is impacting the patient useful for me to triage. So if a patient is very severely psychologically distressed by it, I will make sure that this patient is seen hopefully sooner rather than later. Really, I mean, it's, 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 it's part of the whole triage process. More information allows us to triage more accurately. I think I agree with Alvin. We triage, we need to triage all the referrals that come through. And so it often worries me that I might miss something because the information isn't there on the referral and I might triage it as not, not urgent when actually it is. We've had a couple of times when uh, we've had pigmented lesions that that really actually were melanomas. So, you know, an indication of, of whether the GP really is really worried about it, we'll always try and see them, you know, more urgently for sure. Oh, I completely agree with what Alvin and Belinda said. I think some GPs are a little bit concerned about using the correct dermatological terminology and they don't want to come across as being silly. But I think if you just describe the lesion in normal medical terms, you know, its size, shape, colour, scaliness, itch, and give a natural history of the of the lesion or the rash and um, what you've tried, like Alvin mentioned before, it gives you guys a bit of a heads up, don't try that again, we've already tried that, and so we'll need to go to the next step. So I think a lot of it's just re- the GPs having the confidence just to describe the lesion, which I think everyone can do, and not being afraid of using the incorrect, is it a papule, is it a macule, is it a pustule, whatever. And to turn the tables, Sonny and Karen, what do you like to see in letters back from dermatologists? I mean, getting a letter back within a few weeks of the consultation certainly helps as distinct from getting it six months later and you have no idea what's happened in that intervening time. Also, giving an idea towards your thought thought processes, like why you've come to the conclusion that it's a particular condition and what sort of criteria you've used to make that decision. 
And then your treatment plan and what you expect to happen with that treatment plan, the time frame you expect things to improve and things. Specialist letters in general, GPs can learn a hell of a lot from that. I want to echo what Sunny said that as a GP registrar, especially the letters that we get from specialists, especially dermatologists, are extremely educational. They're interesting. We want to see what's happening and next time maybe we'll be able to do something ourselves and you know we can learn from it from interest sake as well. Uh, I think one thing that really helps me and a lot of my colleagues is a kind of, well, if this doesn't work, what's next? What is the next step? Do we need to do something? Should we anticipate or plan from something? And if there's a side effect, what's the most likely thing and what to do about it? Kind of always planning ahead to see those next steps is really, really useful. This is a bit of a tricky question, but is bilateral cellulitis real? It's very rarely real. Cellulitis is usually unilateral. When someone comes in with bilateral cellulitis, what's probably happening is that someone's getting venous eczema that's bilateral, but potentially it could be secondarily infected. So it's kind of real, okay? Generally, we, we see cellulitis as a unilateral process. And if someone has, you know, bilateral, itchy, red, swollen legs, it's generally just venous eczema. Uh, look, I think... The situation where it may look suspicious for bilateral cellulitis is a condition called lipodermatosclerosis, which is the condition where people get that champagne bottle legs from chronic venous hypertension. So they get woody induration, the hyperpigmentation, and for the most part that is not inflammatory. And, you know, people just sort of cope with that. They might get the occasional ulcer, but every now and again it actually becomes inflammatory. And so that's when you see it get very red, swollen, and uh, there's a sort of associated dermatitis with it. So it's not actually cellulitic in the traditional sense of a bacterial infection, but it is very inflamed. So generally, if I see that, it just requires rest, elevation, topical steroids, wet dressings, and occasionally I'll use pentoxifilin. And that can be used sort of 400 milligrams BD. And the idea of that is it's sort of supposed to improve red cell deformability. So one of the problems with that condition is that all those vessels become very tightly matted and they, they're trying to traverse a very thickened dermis. And so if you can get the red cells to deform through those vessels, then it will improve circulation. So there's sort of some soft evidence that that works, but actually clinically I find it does help. So that is probably the one condition to bear in mind if you were worried about this idea of bilateral cellulitis. Okay, so next we have an opportunity for the panel members to ask each other questions if there's anything that might come up. Karen? I'll start us off. I had one which was about ingrown hairs, which comes up a fair bit. Basically, anywhere you get hairs, they can be ingrown. What should we do about it? Ingrown hairs end up developing from either waxing or shaving. And so as the hair's regrowing, it doesn't necessarily grow back up through the hair channel that it started with. It sort of diverts off laterally into the skin. And then you can see it sort of circling there under the skin. Why some people are a bit prone to that is not certain, but it is actually quite challenging to treat. So sometimes it will cause a secondary folliculitis. So you need to treat that with either antibiotics, preferably oral, not topical. And then sometimes topical salicylic acid or topical alpha hydroxy acids, which get rid of that superficial keratin and can help 
these hairs traverse. The Really, the only way of fixing it is laser hair reduction. It is the best way of fixing it because sometimes once that process is started, it's very hard to switch it off. You've just got to get rid of the hair and you can't keep waxing it or shaving it because the problem just keeps persisting. So we actually see quite a few patients with that problem um, and laser hair reduction is fantastic. So can I just add some ingrown hairs occur in the mandibular areas, particularly of uh, guys after they shave. And it tends to be more, you know, I, I see it more in, in patients who are with darker skin and it may be because their hairs tend to hook in a little bit more. So the other thing that can be done apart from laser hair removal is actually to allow these patients to grow their hair out to a, like a short stubble so that it doesn't keep hooking in every time they shave it. So clipping the hair uh, rather than just shaving it flush to the skin. But it will take a while for that, the existing you know, ingrown hair to actually resolve. Can, can I ask a question now? So this is really to, to Sunny, Karen and Alicia. So what are some of the, the barriers and issues facing GPs regarding skin problems? I mean, it is a broad question. Um, I'll, I'll start. I guess one of the issues starts right from medical school, the education regarding dermatology. I think we all agree that the amount of time we get taught dermatology as an undergraduate is very, very small for the amount of time, certainly in general practice, that we see skin conditions. So that's one of the issues, not getting enough undergraduate education. And then, of course, then there's the postgraduate education, which in recent times has become a lot better. Certainly things like these podcasts are really great from an education point of view, and they certainly weren't around five or 10 years ago. So given the undergraduate education is quite difficult to change. I think providing more postgraduate education for GPs and doctors in general, I guess, is really, really helpful. The other more practical thing is getting access to dermatologists in a reasonable time frame. You know, you guys are really busy and often booked out for months in advance. Um, and so someone with an, you know, a serious condition that needs to be seen relatively quickly, um, trying to get access to you guys in a, in a reasonable time frame, it can be quite difficult. And I guess that's where faxing or emailing through referrals and you guys triaging that type of stuff um, certainly makes that process a little bit easier. But I'm not sure if most practices do that or not. But then again, you know, sometimes I just pick up the phone and call Alvin, for example, and say, this is what I've got. This is what I'm concerned about. Can you see this guy um, more quickly and then you know, usually it helps out. And, and I guess the other thing is, you know, the ability to, for you guys to keep spaces available for urgent appointments as people come through. I mean, I don't want you guys staying till 10 o'clock at night seeing urgent patients. So one thing we do in general practice is just keep appointments every day for the people who need to be seen on the day. And in, certainly in general practice, we see a lot of that type of stuff. And so, you know, there might be something which some dermatologists need to consider about keeping one or two appointments a day for urgent things that, that do crop up so patients can be seen in a timely manner. But that brings us to the end of this uh, Ask Me Anything episode of Spot Diagnosis. There were just so many questions submitted that we couldn't answer all of them. Thank you to everyone who did submit a question. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the episode and found answers to some of your nagging questions about dermatology. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. Thank you to all our experts for your time and sharing your expertise with us. We would also like to thank our producer and supervisor, Associate Professor Alvin Chong at the Skin Health Institute. We'd also like to thank the education team at the Institute. For listeners who want more information on this subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. Finally, we really want to say thank you and good luck to Dr. Blake Mumford, who has done such a brilliant job as a co-host over two seasons of Spot Diagnosis. 
We will miss your irreverent wit and self-deprecating humour, which has become a hallmark of our podcast. Well done, Blake. We'll really miss you. For our listeners, thank you for making Spot Diagnosis one of the most popular medical podcasts in Australia. We have come to the end of Season 3, and we'll be back for Season 4, when we'll explore more dermatological topics including male and female genital dermatoses, skin problems in immunosuppressed patients, and the use of biologics in dermatology. Thanks for your kind words. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us and give us five stars because this is my last episode. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. Have a great Christmas and happy holidays. So can we actually end this podcast with three cheers for Blake Mumford? Hip, hip. Hooray! Hip, hip. Hooray! Hip, hip. Hooray! The Skin Health Institute would like to thank our exclusive institute partner, Melbourne Pathology, for their support of the Spot Diagnosis podcast.